Well, thank you, Colleen. <clears throat> if you've been paying attention, you know that we're uh, we've just past all the easy stuff in the Sermon on the Mount, and we've turned the chapter, and we're going to get to some of the really tough stuff today. Um, now, if you've been following, you know that that's a bit of a joke, and normally you would have laughed, but I, I know. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles. If you're at home, I hope that you have your Bibles open there too. Maybe you're taking some notes as well. And uh, <clears throat> we'll dive into this uh, study here in, in a moment. I just want to tell you a, a quick story about my first real car. Well, actually, the reason I say real car is because my very first car was a 1976 Buick two-door Regal sedan. The doors were about six feet long, heavy, gross, the whole thing. I bought it for $600 from my brother-in-law. And um, it, was, it was so rusted out that one time I was turning a corner and I had hockey equipment in the back and I heard this noise and I looked in the rearview mirror and a hockey stick had fallen out through the rusted side panel and was dragging on the ground. It hadn't completely fallen out because the blade kind of held it back, but there it was bouncing along the ground. My first real car, my nice car, was a 1982 Volkswagen Scirocco. It was a nice car. It was red. And... Um, uh, it only lasted six months because I hit an icy patch and hit another car, and it was totaled. Second car, because I liked that Volkswagen so much, was a Volkswagen Golf GTI. Sunroof, had, its, uh, had uh, nice rims on it. It was a nice car. And um, I had that car for a long time. I met Tina, um, and uh, she had an Oldsmobile. Now, all due respect to all of you who have an Oldsmobile, it's kind of an old person's car, right? And uh, but Tina had one. It was kind of nice. It was a sedan, two-door. We packed it up when we got married in Cleveland. We <clears throat> stuffed the back seat full and the trunk with uh, some of her belongings. We drove across the country, and she joined me in Calgary. We moved to Ontario, and at that point, we had to make the tough decision to sell the GTI. Family was in the plans, and then it was like the minivan era. 15 years of Dodge caravans and Pontiac Montanas. But I've always had kind of a soft spot for Volkswagen. That is until about 2015. Some of you may know what I'm talking about because they were involved in what was called the emissions scandal or diesel gate, if you will. Volkswagen, listen to this, they had intentionally programmed their diesel engines to activate their emissions controls only during lab testing so that they could meet the standards during regulatory testing. When in reality, they were emitting 40 times the allowable limits. But they deceived the test with something that they ended up calling a defeat device. This was done with 11 million cars worldwide. They basically cheated the system they lied. They deceived the car buying public. There were huge consequences. The CEO, of course, resigned. Others in upper management were suspended. Days after the first um, allegations of this came out, their stock fell by a third of the price. They were eventually charged with fraud and conspiracy. There were criminal charges involved. It's been an awful thing. The cost to the company, get this, of all of the fines and penalties and recalls and repairs and buyouts and everything, $33.3 billion. 
That's a lot of cars. All the consequences of being untruthful. And so whether it's a corporation lying to protect profits or an individual lying to protect a reputation, Jesus calls all of us to be truth-tellers and people of integrity. We're in this series we've been calling Living the Life, and it's a study of Jesus' most famous teaching. And this section that Colleen read for us, we will discover that Jesus is most interested in truthfulness. In the early 90s, there was a landmark study done called The Day America Told the Truth. And, and it's so landmark that they've never repeated it because I think the results were so embarrassing and so shocking. They made some unbelievable discoveries. Among them was this, that 91% of all of the people surveyed admitted that they lie regularly. That one in five couldn't make it out throughout a day without lying in some way. And perhaps the most shocking thing is that these lies were conscious. They were deliberate. They were intentional. Just the way Volkswagen's deception was intentional. Well, I probably don't need to tell you this, but truth and integrity are vital to a healthy society. And yet they are very much under attack. So what does Jesus say about telling the truth? I've organized my thoughts this morning under three headings as we look at this passage that was read for us. And the first is just simply this. Truth-tellers don't swear falsely. They don't swear falsely. Verse 33 says, Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. And again, we see this familiar, you have heard. Note that Jesus doesn't say, it is written as he does in other places when he quotes the Old Testament. Here he says, you have heard. So he's not actually quoting an Old Testament verse or passage. He's quoting a familiar way that the law was interpreted. And the people that were listening to him on that mountainside on that day would have been very familiar with what Jesus said about breaking and keeping oaths. They would have known the Ten Commandments by heart. The third being Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And Exodus 20, verse 16, the Ninth Commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. And so they would also know what the Old Testament teaches about swearing falsely. Leviticus 19.12 says, Do not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of the Lord. I am the Lord. Do not swear falsely by my name. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Easy for us to understand. Numbers 30 verse 2 says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to put himself under an obligation, he must not break his word. He must do whatever he has promised. Now you could go to Deuteronomy 23 verses 21 through 23 and read uh, similar verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 5 again says, better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Now, if you compare these various Old Testament verses, none of them are quoted directly by Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 33. 
And that's because the Pharisees would take these Old Testament laws and conveniently interpret them to suit themselves. And something new would sort of come up, a a new practice, a new way of fitting, you know, fulfilling the, the sort of the spirit of the law, but not the letter of the law. And the Pharisees were always looking for loopholes. They really wanted to obey the law perfectly. They wanted to appear righteous. And so they made up their own versions to make these laws manageable or easier to obey. Think easier to be righteous. And Jesus repeatedly demonstrates that he is against the nitpicking legalism of the Pharisees. Again, we see that Jesus is getting to deeper heart issues here. He's not concerned with the outward actions. Or not so much concerned, I should say, with the outward actions. Because as we'll see in a moment, the Pharisees, they found a workaround. They knew full well that any oaths made in God's name, they couldn't be broken. And so they would use other objects, still kind of related to God, and they would swear on those because then, well, they could break them because it wasn't that big of a deal. They weren't swearing to God, just things kind of like God. Friends, we know that we should be people of truth. We know that we should be truth-tellers and that we shouldn't need an oath to somehow add credibility to our words. And yet, if the statistics are true, many of us lie and find it difficult not to. Now, maybe that makes us a little bit uncomfortable, but just think about this for a minute. How, how do you think we might lie and why? I mean, what is the heart behind some of these things? I was thinking about this and a pretty ugly list developed. And I was thinking we might lie because of pride. We, we want to impress other people. We want to astonish them in some way. And so maybe we're tempted to just shade the truth a little bit. Tell a little white lie to, again, impress others. Maybe at the root there's selfishness, and so we want to exalt ourselves, and so maybe we're tempted to cheat or cut corners. Or there's jealousy. We don't like maybe what others have, and so we have a tendency then to exaggerate what we do have or don't have. Oh, you think your fish was big. Mine was huge. I couldn't even get it into the boat. It's the stereotypical, exaggerated lie. Or we have our own insecurities. We don't want others to know the real truth about ourselves. And so we make excuses. Convenient ones. In our minds, we may think, oh, they're not outright lies, but... Are we being completely honest when we're making excuses? Maybe it's fear. We can be motivated to lie because of fear. We, we think of the consequences and the trouble we might find ourselves. You know, we've got ourselves into a pickle. And how are we going to get out of this jam? We're going to maybe blame others. The proverbial, well, the dog ate my homework. 
and you don't even have a dog. Maybe we lie because of embarrassment. Again, we want to protect ourselves, and we think that if people really knew, our, knew, knew the truth about us, we'd be so embarrassed, and so we're going to just twist the truth a little bit over here. Now, all of these represent motives and actions to make us appear better than we really are, to make us appear righteous. And in that sense, we're not all that different from the spirit of the Pharisees. And the fact is, honest people, truth-tellers, shouldn't swear falsely. Full stop. Well, secondly, truth-tellers don't manipulate and control So truth-tellers don't need oaths because we might actually use them to control and manipulate others. Let me explain that. First, let's start with verses 34 and 36 where Jesus says this. He says, But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne, or by the earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. And so here's where we see how really messed up this is. The Pharisees managed to find a way to make a distinction between two types of oaths. Those that were made to God and they had to be kept, and those that were made to something other than God and therefore could be broken. I mean, how convenient. And Jesus responds to the Pharisees' distortion of the law, and he sets his teaching up against that of what they were teaching. He starts by saying, don't take an oath at all. And the Pharisees, they tried to avoid using God to make an oath because they knew it was wrong and those vows that were made in God's name, they couldn't be broken. And so they would go and use things other than God, but not God himself. And this way, they wouldn't be too concerned about keeping uh, these oaths, excuse me, keeping these vows that they had made um, without God's name. And so they might say, well, then I swear by heaven. And Jesus says, well, that doesn't really work either because, you know, heaven is God's throne. Okay, well then, I'm going to swear by earth. Well, that doesn't really work either because the earth is God's footstool. Well, then I'm going to swear by Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem is God's city, and it says it's the city of the great king, so that doesn't really work either. He says, and don't even swear by your head. I mean, that just seems like an odd thing to swear on, right? And again, what Jesus is saying, listen, he says, your head may belong to you. It's connected to your neck, and it's part of who you are. But you were created by who? By God. And even your heads, even though they're on your, on your shoulders, they're under God's control. It's God who we can maybe give thanks to. He, he's the one who controls the aging process when dark hair turns white. So Jesus is just going, making the point here. Listen, a vow is a vow is a vow. And don't try to play with this and find a way to make a distinction between those vows that you make to God and those vows that you make to something else. 
Because in the end, just making a vow is a problem. And why do I say that? Because Jesus is focused on two things here. He's focused, number one, on truthfulness, that we would be truthful in all of our speech, and he's concerned about God's name. And so what he's really saying is the best thing that we can do is do not take an oath at all and just stay away from trying to somehow make more of this than you ought to. And really, if you stop and think about it, vows should be completely unnecessary. But we, like the Pharisees, we we use them at times to appear more truthful than we really are. And so we, we use God to verify the truth or to emphasize the truth, kind of add weight to the truth, right? This is where we go and we tell a story or we're telling something, then we go, I swear to God. Why? Because we're trying to emphasize that what we said is really true. Or we'll say, honest to God. Or a shortened form, honestly. I, I catch myself doing this. I don't know if you do. I might be writing an, an email and it sort of comes naturally. You go, period. Well, honestly, comma. And then you go, and I'm like, wait a minute. Why do I need to say honestly here? Is it because I wasn't honest up until that point, And now I'm going to emphasize the part that I'm really being truthful about? You see, every time we swear to God, <clears throat> we're using God in kind of a devious way to manipulate and dominate other people through false claims. And it's just plain wrong. Because it's a misuse of God's name, first and foremost, but it's also destructive and damaging to other people. Because these statements, these oaths, they're added to our words. We, we use them to make them sound true and real, but we may not be telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. We may, in fact, not actually be fully committed to the truth. And so when we shade the truth or twist it just a little bit, or we conceal it, we're demonstrating that we have actually a wrong approach to other people. We're manipulating them through deceit. And worst part is, we're using God to do it. Dallas Willard writes about this, and, and this is what he says. He, he just says in a way better way than I could ever paraphrase it. So here is this quote. This is from The Divine Conspiracy. He says, But Jesus goes right to the heart of why people swear oaths. He knew that they did it to impress others with their sincerity and reliability and thus gain acceptance of what they are saying and what they want. It is a method for getting their way. And then he goes on to say they are declaring some promise or purpose or some point of information or knowledge dear to them. They want their hearers to accept what they say and do what they want. So they say, by God, or God knows, to lend weight to their words and presence. It is simply a device of manipulation designed to override the judgment and will of the ones they are focusing upon to push them aside, rather than respecting them and leaving their decision and action strictly up to them. So by swearing to God, by swearing on a stack of Bibles, 
we may actually be trying to control and manipulate the other person's view of us. We want them to think highly of us. We want to impress them. So we might just avoid telling the whole truth. And maybe we find ourselves making these split-second calculations to determine whether or not we're going to tell the truth. And we're asking ourselves, what's in my best interest right now? You see, if that's what's going on, we open ourselves to the possibility of living a life of deceit and deception and dishonesty. And it just comes out in subtle ways. Sorry, I'm, I'm late. Traffic was terrible, honestly. When in fact, maybe it wasn't that bad and we just got caught up on social media and we got distracted and we lost track of time, but... We don't want anybody really to think that we were that irresponsible and so we disrespected their time and so we're late and, and, and so we just kind of quickly make something up. This happens whenever we're selling something and we can go to great lengths sometimes to try to convince people. John Stott writes, swearing or oath-taking is really a pathetic confession of our own dishonesty. Ouch. I mean, in other words, why would we add, I swear to God, to a promise made? Probably only to emphasize our commitment to keep our promise because we already know that our promise may not be trusted. And so we maybe say to our kids, you know, I, I promise you, I'm going to take you, you know, out to buy that video game tomorrow. And the kid says, well, you said that last time, Dad, meaning you didn't take care of what you said that you would. And so this time you say, well, I promise that we're going to do it tomorrow. I, I, I swear to God. Do you see how subtle this could be and how easily it could slip into our language and how easily this can become part of this vicious cycle where we fall into this trap of impression management and we're so concerned about what other people think about us that we're willing to try to go to great lengths to help them to believe stuff about us that may not even be true. And this is what Jesus is against. You see, if we're a dishonest person, we will always try to add words that make us appear to be more truthful than we are. When we add an oath, we're in effect manipulating other people to believe us. And here's the point. God already knows the truth about us. And God is already present when we make a promise or make an oath. And so as followers of Jesus, we represent his presence to others. And so when we're dishonest, it's just simply a bad witness of who God is in our lives. And therefore, we should always be truthful. Brings me to my last point. Truth tellers are who they say they are and do what they say they will do. In verse 37, we read where Jesus goes on with his teaching and says, 
But let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. And so what Jesus is saying here is this is this act of deliverance. It's, it's simply an invitation to be truthful, to be a straightforward truth teller. And Jesus actually said it twice. He says, yes, yes, and no, no, to really emphasize how important this is. So he says, say yes when you really mean yes, and say no when you really mean no. As followers of Jesus, if we make a promise, it already is in the name of Jesus. So we shouldn't have to add anything to it because it's a simple yes or no. And so Jesus, again, is calling us to practice integrity. And as followers of Jesus, we need to be people of integrity, people who keep the promises we make. We have to be people of our word. James, in chapter 5, verse 12, he's writing about the same thing. And listen to how similar this sounds. He says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth, or by anything else, all you need to say is a simple yes or no. And so we always speak as if we're in the presence of God, because we are. And then our word will be enough. And so we need to be people who practice speech that is consistent with living this life that Jesus invites us to live. This life of God in us. His rule and reign in our lives. And so you can apply this in many different ways. If you're, if you're a business owner, that you'd be known for your integrity and your business practices. That you would deliver on time. If you're a salesman, you don't, you don't like kind of over-promise and then under-deliver. Oh, we'll have it to you by Wednesday. When you know it's not going to be there on Wednesday. I don't know if I've ever admitted this in public. But I'm a recovering people pleaser. Any of you identify? Because maybe we should start a support group. What happens when you're a people pleaser, it's that it's hard for you to say no. You, you don't want to disappoint other people. And, and so you're asked to do something, you know you can't, you know you don't have time, you know you're overburdened, but your tendency is to say, well, how, how can I say yes? Because I don't want this person to think less of me. And so then you over-explain. And I, and I think it's kind of funny. It's like, you know you're a people pleaser when it takes you about 20 minutes to explain that, no, you can't meet on Wednesday afternoon. All you need to say is yes or no. To just be you. I hope that's freeing to some of you. Because we can get so easily caught up in thinking about what other people think of us to the point that we're willing to be less than truthful so that we can shape and control the way that they might look at us. 
And by the way, Jesus adds, and anything more than this, more than the yes is yes and the no is no, he says, is from the evil one. Some manuscripts might just say evil and some say evil one, but anything more than a straightforward yes or no, it either comes from the evil of our hearts or from the evil one who Jesus calls in John 8 verse 44, a liar and the father of lies. So one final reminder that lying is sin. So what do we do about it? We want to be people of the truth, right? We want to, we want to be those truth tellers. And I think as all of these, I keep inviting you back to this, I think we have to start with examining ourselves. Examine yourself under the guidance of God and the Holy Spirit. Where you would examine your speech, particularly in this area. That you would ask God, like, man, this just seems so... I never thought about it, but are there times where I swear falsely? Do I make exaggerations for, for effect? Have I allowed little white lies to become part of my speech, so much so that I hardly notice that anymore? Oh, God, reveal that to me. Do I make excuses, blame others, or cut corners to get myself out of a jam? Do I try to control people's impressions of me? And if God answers, yeah, you do, then ask the deeper question, why? God, what's going on inside of me? What is it that I've not surrendered to you? What is it that hasn't been healed by your spirit? And we confess and we repent and we move away from that because we've examined ourselves and we've found areas in our lives that aren't completely truthful. And secondly, we make a commitment to tell the truth. Where we just admit, you know what? I'm going to be a genuinely honest person. And followers of Jesus should say what they mean and mean what they say. Full stop. We speak the truth. And we speak the truth in love. Because sometimes, you know, we, we speak the truth, but with so much love that we're also actually untruthful. We don't ever really get the point across. But then conversely, sometimes we can be so truthful that we're unloving. Uh, but if we're going to speak the truth, then we also got to be able to receive the truth. So are we teachable? If, if, if someone comes to you with something that's a little bit unpleasant, can you receive that? Can you ask God humbly before, go humbly before God and say, is this true of me? And lastly, we live the truth. I mean, we've been talking about this invitation in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is saying. It's just, friends, this is how we live the life. There's a better way to live. And it's exhausting if you're trying to keep up a facade. It's exhausting if you're trying to just always get people to like you. And so we live a life of truthfulness. Not just through what we say with our words, but that it actually becomes a way of life for us. It's a life of faithfulness where we're faithful to God, we're faithful to our word, we're faithful to others. And we know this to be part of the character qualities, part of the fruit of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit develops in us. And it becomes who we are. It's a life of integrity where appearance and reality are exactly the same. So what you see is what you get. 
And you never have to preface anything with an oath or a statement because you know it's really true. And friends, if we make that a prayer, I wonder how God would impact relationships. I wonder how he would impact our job situations, the places that we have difficulty with. How much would that change if we were people who were committed to becoming truth-tellers, shaped and formed in the image of Jesus? I'll give the final word this morning to Eugene Peterson, who in his message trans- paraphrase, he translates these verses, verses 33 through 37, in this way, and I think it's just a great summary of all that I said this morning. And you're going to think, well, why didn't you just read that at the beginning and we could have been done with it? But <clears throat> hopefully this now makes sense in light of everything that we've said. This is what he says. And don't say anything you don't mean. This counsel is embedded deep in our traditions. You only make things worse when you lay down a smokescreen of pious talk saying, I'll pray for you and never doing it, or saying, God be with you and not meaning it. You don't make your words true by embellishing them with religious lace. In making your speech sound more religious, it becomes less true. Just say yes and no. When you manipulate words to get your own way, you go wrong. So friends, let's just be who we say we are and do what we say we will do. Let's pray. Father, give us the strength. Give us the courage. Do a deep work in each of our lives. Reveal to us those places where Maybe if we're totally, totally honest with ourselves, we have been less than honest with ourselves. Reveal those parts of our speech that we use to control and manipulate how other people think about us. And Father, help us to just step into those places where we can say yes and really mean yes and no and really mean no. And like we just heard, if we're going to say, I'll pray for you, that we actually do it. Whatever those promises are that we make, that we would also keep them. And Father, we know full well that we can't do this on our own. We need your help and we need your Spirit's power. We need your grace. Grace for ourselves. Grace for others. That you would just do that deep work. It begins with us coming humbly before you and asking you to reveal those parts that are out of alignment with the way that you call us to live. And to know that it's okay, but it's not okay to stay there. That we would confess and repent and turn to you. Father, continue to do that work that you started in us, knowing that you are a God who is faithful to complete what you started. None of us are there. None of us are finished. We're all a work in progress. Lord, help us as we walk this out together and live this life that you've called us to together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.